We've been in a series on Ephesians, made new to live new. We heard uh, over the last several weeks about God's big truth, that, um, that he chose us uh, in Christ. He delivered us in Christ. He secured us by the Spirit of Christ um, for a heavenly inheritance, uh, the promised land, we've called it. But there's this crazy thing, you see. Uh, we might know this big truth. We might even believe it. But we wonder if it has any power. And sometimes we get beat up because we don't see that power. We, we, we miss it. There's this, this God who's done all these things, and yet it seems like maybe he's done doing stuff. And maybe uh, we even start to have some doubts about it about God's power, what it, what it looks like. Well, there's good news, friends. The Ephesians did too. And Paul anticipated that. And so right after he told the big truth, he encouraged them and prayed for them. Let's read that together. Please stand as we read Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, and learn about how we see past the fog of war. Paul writes, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I don't cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, You might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great strength. You see, Ephesians, God put that power to work in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but every age to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and has made him head over all things for our sake, for the church. Because the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You may be seated. Seeing past the fog of war. The fog of war is a phrase uh, that's been developed to, ex- to try to describe, for those of us who've, who've never been in war, what it feels like on the ground. Um, because it's chaotic. It's hard to understand. There's a lot going on, and, and, and you just don't have a big picture view. Um, there's a, a movie that was controversial when it came out because uh, it was exceedingly violent. Um, it was called Saving Private Ryan. And the first 30 minutes of this movie are some of the most jarring uh, ever caught on film to try and describe what the experience of war is. And these 30 minutes um, begin uh, like this. Click. Click. Or not. It's not there. Oh, there it is. Yes. This is how it starts. Um, you can just see there's literally fog. And you can see the outline of some hills. 
And then there's another flash. Hold on, there's a second, Tori. Um, there's a, another flash where uh, everything's jerky and shaky. And then um, uh, sounds begin to come. And the sounds are, are explosions and bullets and whatnot. And then uh, there's scenes on the, on the beach. And they're, and they're running up the beach. If you know the story of the invasion of Normandy, um, we're in landing craft. And, and the craft lands under fire. Uh, there's um, bunkers on the hill that are dropping um, machine guns and mortar rounds on the beach as the men move forward. And as they're moving forward, they come up against the bank of the beach and then they uh, put some explosives in to open up a way into some trenches that are below the beach. And it, it looks like this. And it, you can barely see anything except the man next to you. And, and then um, they, get to, they, they go up the hill um, and, and they get to this place where they actually reach um, the bunkers at the top of the hill. Tori, go ahead. And they get here, and you can see um, there's a lot of smoke. They're, they're trying to clear out the bunkers so that the um, Germans who are firing down on the beach will stop. And, 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 the, and the whole time, um, you're, you're completely disoriented. You have no idea what's going on. It's, uh, it's completely and utterly disorienting and frightening and scary. Um, when Steven Spielberg was making this movie, it's the first time that he'd ever done a movie where he did not storyboard a scene. Storyboarding is where you um, draw out with sketches each kind of basic shot that you're going to have throughout the scene. And this is sort of like a, uh, it's a, it's a grammar, if you will, for how the, the movie is going to proceed. Spielberg left the first 30 minutes of this movie completely unstoryboarded. Moreover, he had almost no what we call establishing shots. In movies, an establishing shot is when you get kind of the big picture and it says, oh, this is where the scene's going to take place. And then you zoom in on characters. In Saving Private Ryan, for the first 30 minutes, there's almost none of these. And so every single picture, every, every action is right close up with um, our, our uh, soon-to-be hero, Tom Hanks. As, and we're following through his eyes this, this scene that is complete and total chaos. And after this jarring experience, we get this. Hanks has moved to the top of the hill. And he stops, and, and, and it, it's quiet. And we see this scene, and we see for the first time everything that's gone on. Friends, in life, we spend our life, for the most part, in the midst of a fog of war. And the Ephesians did too. Our war is not D-Day and World, World War II. Our war is a spiritual and cultural war. And that was the situation at Ephesus. There were two basic sources for the Ephesian fog of war. The first is internal strife. And in the, we, we, if we look at this text, if we appear behind the text and kind of peek around the, the, in, in the cracks, we can start to see that the Ephesians were having some internal strife. Now, if you've been in a church for any length of time, and you've gotten to know the people, you find out, uh, it's, it's fascinating, when you first get to a church, um, usually, you're, if you like it, you're like, oh, this place is, this is it, they've got it. They, you know, uh, this is the church that has God's truth, and there's a great feeling of love here, and the people are so wonderful, and then you stick around for a while, and you're like, well, that person's not so great, I can't believe they did that. And then, uh, if you're really, if it really, unfortunately, you get into church leadership, it's like, um, it's like peering under the hood of a beat-up old car, and you're like, oh, that's terrible. That, I can't believe that thing functions. 
Uh, I have a friend. Um, we just had uh, dinner with uh, some friends. They, uh, they go to a different church in this area. And uh, he told me, nothing has ever shaken my faith like being on staff in a church. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I get that. I was like, go to seminary. That's worse. <laughs> uh, but you understand the point, though, because once you start to get into people's lives, you start to find out that they're like you. They're sinners. And that expresses itself in certain ways. Look at, look at this, uh, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. Um, look at this. So that with your eyes, the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope of his calling. You may know what are the riches of his inheritance among the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great strength. You see, there's a problem. The Ephesians don't know this stuff. That's why Paul's praying for it. The Ephesians are living their lives and, and, and they're going, and their hearts aren't enlightened. They don't regularly see the hope of his calling. They're having a hard time looking for this glorious inheritance, this, these riches among the saints. They're looking around and the saints look like them. And they're wondering, where is this great power? God, Paul, you've just said that God chose us and delivered us and secured us. We're not seeing it. Where is this great power amongst us who believe? Why are they having such a problem? Well, the problem is a problem of perception. They're, they're, for some reason, they're looking around in their congregation, and, and all they're seeing is, is the gunk on the engine, and they're not seeing the way that the car actually runs. They're getting caught up in this moment. They're, they're in the midst of the battle, right? And there's explosions going off, and there's bullets whizzing by, and it's a shaky cam, and they can't see beyond that. All they can see is... The stuff that's wrong with the person next to him in the pews. And because they're in the thick of it, the church looks weak and helpless. They're not seeing God's power. They're not seeing his strength. There's another problem with the Ephesian fog of war, another source for it. Oh, by the way, that was the first thing in your note sheets. The fog of war in the Ephesian and Southern California churches comes from internal strife. Internal strife. But there's a second thing, and those are external pressures. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at, um, uh, we, we saw a clear version of, of that, that black and white photo, which is um, the, it's the, the, the theater in Ephesus. And uh, we reviewed the story where when Paul had been in Ephesus for a couple years, we have this in, in Acts, Acts 19, he starts a riot. His teaching starts a riot. Uh, the, the, the silversmiths and the idol uh, makers in the town, they flip out because the Christians are not going to the, uh, the temple of Artemis anymore, one of the great ancient wonders of the world. They're not going to the temple of Artemis and, 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 and sacrificing. And so they're not buying the sacrifices. They're not buying the idols. And so the, the silversmiths, Demetrius and some others, they flip out. They lose it. They go to the, the theater. They're railing against the Christians. And they, they're screaming out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, Paul, at this point, Paul takes off. Paul's in danger, and so the church sends him away, and he starts going off to Jerusalem and all these other places. But the Ephesians, the Ephesians stay put. They have to deal with the aftermath of this chaos that's been caused by the gospel. They have to deal with the external pressures that come from all these people around them who hate what they stand for. They have to live with the gospel and they have to go with all the things that comes with. All the, the, 
the, the dirty looks and the lost economic opportunities, they're, they're, they feel like they've got no power. They feel like the powers that be are running the show and they're just under the thumb. Look at this in, in verses uh, 21 and 22. Look at all the stuff that Paul's concerned about. Rule and authority and power and dominion. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. All things under his feet, over all things. There's all these powers and dominions and authorities. It's Caesar and Artemis and Zeus and the, the local business council and the neighborhood watch. And every single one of them are against this church. And Paul's trying to remind this church, remind them that that's not all there is. You might even say the Ephesians are getting pushed around by the powers that be. The government, the other gods, all of their allies, they're all lined up against the church in Ephesus. To which I say, sound familiar? Apparently, there was a time in this country where um, <laughs> the culture at large wasn't hostile to the Church of Jesus Christ. I've heard this. I, I mean, and I, I feel like I kind of remember it. Um, but I also feel like the farther I go and the longer I live, the less and less that's the case. In fact, it feels like more and more that the culture around me and the people outside of here are suspicious of me and angry at me and think that I'm a bigot and I'm intolerant and whatever it is. And, and, and they, they're more and more inclined to push me around to the point that we've even had in our own church a, a group of people who have tried to write, write portions of our constitution to protect us from the authorities. So the Ephesians are dealing with internal strife. They've looked under the hood and there's gunk on the engine. And the people in the pews to them aren't as holy as they ought to be. And on the other hand, they're being pressed from the outside. A thumb of authority being pushed on them so that they don't have the same opportunities as their neighbors. And they've heard Paul say for two years, God chose you, he delivered you, he secured you by his spirit. And they might start asking a question. If God is so powerful, if the cross truly removed sin, broke shame, if we're really chosen, delivered, and secured, then how come things feel the way they do? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't a law get passed? Or why doesn't this person start acting right? How come it doesn't feel the way it ought? And Paul's prayer gives us two elements to the answer to that question. The first is about God's power in this age. See, the Ephesians, they'd heard the stories, just as we've heard the stories, that, you know, the people were in slavery in Israel, and God said, oh boy, Egypt, look out. Look what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw some plagues. There's going to be some gnats and, and boils. The river's going to be red with blood, darkness, hail. And then, to top it all off, I'm going to send the angel of death to wipe out your firstborn. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty amazing. And the Ephesians are asking themselves, God, why don't you do that for us now? Why don't you just wipe them out? The reason, friends, is that God doesn't work the same in every age. Um, we're a dispensationalist church. We call this dispensationalism. The idea being that the way God operates alters throughout history as, as his divine plan is, is unveiled before us. 
And one of the interesting things in, in, this, in this passage is that Paul is pointing out that right now, the way God primarily demonstrates his power is by new life in the Spirit. New life in the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 1.20 again. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? The working of his great strength. Well, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's new life. Uh, the theologians like to say vivification, life-givingness in the spirit. That's the way God works. He raises new life up and then glorifies it. That's what he did in Christ. This same power, notice this same power for us who believe, it was worked out in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. And so Paul's first answer to this question, they're wondering, why don't you do something, God? Paul says, well, first, friends, first, you need to reset the way you think about God's power. You see, it's, it's the same in some ways as, as in the Old Testament. God did bring the people out of Egypt. He was bringing liberation, yes. But God mostly refrains in this age nowadays um, from, you know, I, I, I called it on your note sheets, uh, acts of, of supernatural devastation, right? So in your note sheets, in the church age, God usually demonstrates his power through new life in the spirit. New life in the spirit, rather than supernatural devastation. Doesn't mean that he doesn't do it from time to time, but typically, uh, especially if you look at Romans 1, what God, the way God works out his wrath typically in this age is he lets people do what they want. And uh, what happens when you let human beings do everything that they want, you don't prevent them from doing that, they start to destroy themselves because the power of sin is so pervasive. And so for the first part of Paul's answer, that we're in a new dispensation, Ephesians, and Coast Bible Church of God's power. And this is the power of new life in the Spirit. Look for this. If you start looking for resurrections, if you start looking for new life and, and, and people being set up before God, if you start looking for that kind of power, maybe you'll start to see a bit more of God's power. And so that is the first part of the question. If God's so powerful, if the cross truly removes sin, broke shame, if we're really chosen, delivered, and secured, then how come things feel the way they do? Well, God's power is expressed differently. But second, but second, friends, and this is, this is critical. Ephesian church, Coast Bible church, you are the manifestation of God's power, of this resurrection power, of this new life. It's operating in you right now. You are it. Let's see how this uh, works out in the text. Um, it, it, interesting, uh, the Christ is the heading of the cosmos in Ephesians one twenty two. Very, uh, very obscure passage of scripture. Um, we, we read it um, as Christ is the head, which is um, a very literal translation of kephale. Um, but I, I, I'm going to say it would be more helpful to think about it as a heading. Let's look at the text in verse 22. And he has put all things, God has put all things under Christ's feet and has made him the head over all things for the church. I, I, New King James says toward the church. I think that doesn't quite get the date of there. For the church, it's for the church's benefit, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Why have I um, brought out heading? Well, uh, it's really honestly thanks to Marilyn, Marilyn Diebold. Marilyn, raise your hand. Yep. Marilyn taught me how to write an essay. 
if, <laughs> one of the, I, I've tutored for many years, and one of the things that my students always hate, and I teach now, and they really hate, writing essays. Uh, essays are just a, just a frustrating thing for folks. Um, and, and if any of you have had to do this in school, you know why. It's like, what you really want to do is just kind of just say what you think, right? But an essay, essay has to be organized. And if you don't have a good plan for your essay, then it won't be organized, and you won't communicate what you want. Your arguments will fall flat, and, no one, and you'll get a C or less. Well, Marilyn had a, uh, a foolproof plan, and I, she taught me how to write essays in the 7th grade and the 8th grade um, at Stony Brook Christian School. And uh, she, she taught us this, this method called the keyhole, where you start out and you have your big heading, your thesis. This is what I'm going to tell you. And here's how I'm going to tell it to you. And that's the core of your essay. And then you, the body. Now I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to show it to you in, these, in what we call the body of the essay, right? So you have a heading. Um, if my essay is about uh, why Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors are the greatest team in NBA history, which they are, and that shall be proved when they win the championship in two months, um, probably. Uh, I, would say, I would say Steph Curry is the, is the greatest shooter in NBA history. That's my heading, okay? And then what I do after I have that heading is then I start to fill it out with some stats, the body, the flesh, the fleshing out of that heading, right? Well, um, Paul's language, kephale, um, and then earlier in, in the text in verse 110 where we have summing up or... Um, uh, recapitulate or sums up everything in Christ. Both of those words have the same Greek root, kephal, kephale. And it's the word uh, from which we get our word head. And we also get our word heading. In the ancient world, they also, they, they, um, they strongly correlated uh, the heading that you would have in rhetoric with being the head over something. Um, those were very close concepts in the ancient Near East in a way that they're not now. Typically, when we say that Tom, you know, is the head of his household, we mean Tom's in control, which is obviously not true, but that's what we mean when we say it. Uh, and that's because we work with a metaphor where we think of the head as kind of like the control computer, and then the rest of our body is kind of like the robot that's being controlled by the head. That's sort of how we think about it. That's, um, and that's a very new way of thinking about the relationship between head and body. The ancient Near East didn't have that same relationship. Instead, in the ancient Near East, um, the word head or, or heading was more like the organization, the structure of something. Just like a heading organizes or structures an essay, the body of the essay that Marilyn taught. And so, when we say that Christ is the head of all things, it's not that he's you know, the ruler, although he is, um, and that's made clear in Paul's text, he's saying, you know, uh, he is the ruler over all um, powers and dominions and whatnot. So it is the, the case that, that, that Christ is authoritative and he's ruler, he's Lord, but Paul doesn't need to prove that to anyone. And the reason is because he uses the word Lord to describe Jesus. Lord means king, means authority. And so when he adds this extra thing, this head over all, what he's trying to, to, to communicate to us is that Christ is, and we're going to get into some English here, the grammar of the universe. Christ is the structure of the universe. The whole universe is the body, the fleshing out of this organizing principle. This, 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 and, and, and what's Christ? The cross. He's the crucified God. The crucified and raised God. The crucified and raised and glorified God. This, this pattern, this structure underlies everything in the cosmos, everything in the universe. 
And Paul wants to to make some, some hay out of that. If Christ is authority and structure of the universe, the way that works out in this body is we become sort of the, the fleshing out of that structure, of that, that pattern, that, cr- uh, that crucifixion, resurrection, glorified life, that that pattern is, is in this place, in this people, in this community, in the churches in Ephesus, in Coast Bible Church, that, that picture that, that death is brought into life and that life is glorified, that is somehow made manifest amongst us. This thing that structures, that, that the whole universe is built upon, is made its fullness right here. A bold claim if ever there was one. This is why Paul says Christ is the uh, head of the cosmos for the church. For the church. Christ in himself demonstrates to us what God, the universe, everything ought to look like. And then, and then, we are this, his body. Verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just as Christ is the heading, we are the body paragraph, the fleshing out of his organizing principle, of his structuring, his authority. We do it all right here in this community. The bottom line, friends, is that when the church patterns her activities on Christ, she embodies resurrection power, brings life and glory from death and hopelessness. The problem with the Ephesian church and often our own community is that we're stuck in the middle of the fight. We're so caught up in our internal strife. Uh, This person is doing that and not this. And we're so struggling against what's coming from outside, the thumbs that are being pressed on us from the authorities and the powers and the cultural and social circumstances in which we live. We're so caught up in that that we're found in the fog of war. Friends, this is our experience. And that's Paul's experience. See, Paul, he left the Ephesian church after uh, this riot. And then he went out to Jerusalem. And then he went all out over, all over the, the ancient Near East. He ended up in Rome. I mean, he was everywhere. And wherever he went, he preached the gospel. And he saw the churches. He saw the communities springing up. And yeah, he saw the pressures. And he was not naive about what goes on underneath the hood. Uh, you read Paul's letters. He's really he's clued into the fact that y'all are sinners. He knows. Uh, he's, he's seen it all. And yet, and yet, he's got this bigger picture experience. He's seeing the whole lay of the land. He knows exactly how it's going. And he sees these little messed up, ugly, broken communities, and he sees them as life and glory, the power of God manifest to the world. You, in all of your brokenness, in all of your mess, are God's power, God's glory, God's new life to the world. This is how he starts this prayer, friends, in verse 15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Ephesian church, I know the engine's rusty, but I have heard about your faith and I have heard about your love to the saints. 
You know, friends, uh, in the ancient Near East, when you said that you loved someone, often, um, often that, uh, that meant that you did things for them. And I would say even now, when we say we love somebody, we do stuff for them. Friends, the fog of war, it, um, it, it, it clouds our vision. You know, we're, we're sitting there and we can't see what's going on. And it clouds our, it, it makes it hard for us to recognize something. And, the fir- and Paul talks about it as the glorious inheritance, the riches of God. Well, we have that, friends. We have it here at this church. Just as Paul had heard about the faith and the love of the Ephesians, I believe that if he were writing that letter to us, he would say, I have heard of the faith and love of you here at Coast Bible Church. I know that because I've been here for a long time. Those of you who haven't, you don't know, and some of you who actually have, don't know what this church has done for people. The way her faith has been expressed in love toward the saints. I've experienced that love. When I was at my most downest and outest, who was there for me? You were there for me. I challenge you, if you've been at this church for a year, two years, more, I want you to think. Think about the time that you were here when things were rough. Did this church stand by you? This church bail you out? Did this church pray for you? This church feed you? Did this church flesh out the love of God? Did this church take your death and turn it into life? Did you come here not believing in Jesus and you found that you did and you have eternal life, hope, and security? Did you come to this church and you were broke and you needed a hand and this church was there for you? Whatever your, did you suffer loss in this place? Did you struggle with something? May it be sin, some heartache. And was this church there for you? Was Neil there for you? Did you go from death to life here? I I submit that you did. I know you did. Because I did too. And so we're sitting here and we're locked up in the fog of war and we're shooting the guns and there's explosions everywhere. And Paul says, I know your love for the saints. I know what you've done. You've taken people and you've brought them from death into life. You've preached the gospel to their hearts so that they know the saving free grace of Jesus Christ. And I know that you've followed that up with commitment to people. I know. This is your glorious inheritance right now at the church. And it is a shadow, a a foreshadowing of the glorious inheritance you will receive in heaven when the Lord Jesus comes and takes us home. What you've experienced, a small small death to life here, is going to be eternal life, full, satisfying, complete in heaven. Internal strife keeps you from seeing your glorious inheritance in this church. But, but more, the fog of war, those external pressures, they keep you from seeing the glorious legacy of the big C church in the world. Think about this. This is crazy. This is some crazy stuff. Turns out there's a whole group of people called progressives. This is, uh, the term was developed in the 1920s. It's for people who are just fed up with injustice and misery. 
And so they make it their life's commitment to, to solve and fix injustice. Wherever there is suffering, wherever there are people on the outs, they're going to defend them and protect them and move them forward. That is a really, really weird um, ideology to have in a culture. If you go back before the United States um, and before uh, the Western powers, Great Britain, some of those, France, if you go back before in history, you will never find an empire, a powerful nation state, anybody that's interested in anything other than, you know, getting more stuff and um, killing everybody who's not them. That's kind of the history of the world in like, in like a little thumbnail, okay? I'm going to get more stuff and I'm going to kill you. Think about this, friends. We have an entire group of people who don't believe in God. And they think the most important thing to do is bring justice to the oppressed. Where did they get that idea? Oh, I know. The Church of Jesus Christ. Every single progressive that lives in our culture right now is the grandchild of the great-grandchild of a Puritan, of somebody who saw God's call to the world. And, and, and believe that they should follow it up. These people have stopped believing in God, but they can't get rid of the ideology, the legacy the church has left in the West. We have an entire group of people who their goal, their mission in life is to free those who do not have freedom. They value life, liberty, inclusion, peace, which is what the church has preached since her inception. Those external pressures that keep us from seeing the big picture, the whole lay of the lands, where the gospel of, of Christ and the church has radically altered the world. Brothers and sisters, let's not get caught up in the fog of the war. Let's see past it. Let's recognize the faith of this place, and our love toward the saints. Let's recall how we were blessed, how we've blessed others, and let's see how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has worked out in history and changed the world. And in that, we will know that we are experiencing God's power. That question, it's answered. It's right here. This church, these people are the power of God made manifest, the fullness of him who is all in all. Let's pray. God, I pray you will open our eyes, that our hearts will be enlightened, that we'll be able to see your power, your glorious inheritance, that we won't get caught up in the external right, strife and the ex, uh, uh, external pressures of the world that will be caught up in the fog of war so we cannot see who we really are in you. Instead, we'll be reminded that we are your power of death to life made real in the world. That we are Christ made manifest. That your power is here. It is stirring up new life. It has stirred up new life. It will stir up new life. That souls saved, lives transformed. This is what you're doing. And that as we open our eyes to that, we will glorify you as you deserve to be glorified. You who bring power through the cross and the resurrection. 
We love you, God. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.